You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. As well, you can hear these podcasts at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. There are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 121 by Rudolf Steiner, 11 lectures, entitled The Mission of Folk Souls, translated by Joanna Collis. This is Lecture 10, given in Christiania, Oslo, June 16, 1910. Before we enlarge any further on the telling image of the twilight of the gods, let us establish a firm foundation from which to proceed. On the basis of our research, we will examine in greater detail the nature of the Germanic Nordic folk soul. We will discover how the whole spiritual life of Europe works in concert, how the activity of the various folk spirits furthers the development of humanity in the remote past, in the present, and on into the future. Every single people, even isolated fragments of people, have had their special contribution to make in this great collective task. You will realize from what has been said that in certain respects it has been the task of the pre-Christian and post-Christian cultures of Europe, in particular, to educate the I, capital, through the evolutionary stages of human development, to shape it and gradually to develop it. As we have shown in the case of the Germanic Nordic peoples, the eye was revealed clairvoyantly to human beings in the far distant past. We showed how this eye was bestowed on human beings by an angel being who stood midway between humans and the folk soul, namely Donar or Thor. We have seen how individuals felt themselves to be without an eye, devoid of personality. They saw the eye as a gift from the spiritual world. In the East, when the eye awoke fully, it was not, of course, experienced in the same way. There human beings had already reached, subjectively, such a high degree of perfection that they did not feel the eye as something extraneous but as something intrinsic in themselves. At the time when human beings awoke to an awareness of their eye in the East, their culture was already so far advanced that it was able gradually to develop the finely spun speculation, logic, and wisdom we see in Eastern wisdom today. The East had not experienced the whole process of receiving the eye as though bestowed by a higher spiritual world, through the instrumentality of a divine spiritual being such as Thor. That was the experience of Europe, and hence the European felt this gradual unfolding of the individual I as an emergence out of a kind of group soul. Germanic Nordic human beings felt attached to a group soul as members of a whole community or a closely knit clan. This is why nearly a hundred years after the coming of the Christ impulse to the earth, Tacitus was still able to describe the Germans of Central Europe as evidently belonging to one or other of the various tribes, as being like members in the unity of a single organism to which they belonged. 
Thus each individual still felt himself to be a member of the tribal I. He felt his individual I gradually emerging from the tribal I, and he recognized in the god Thor the bestower of the I, the god who actually endowed him with his individual I. But at the same time, he felt this god to be united with the collective spirit of the tribe and with what lived in the group soul. To this group soul was given the name Sif. She was the spouse of Thor. Her name must be linguistically related to the German word Sippa, meaning kin, although in a veiled way. In the esoteric sense, Sif denotes the group soul of the separate community from which the individual emerges. Sif is the being who unites with the god of the individual I, with Thor, the bestower of the individual I. The human individual perceived Sif and Thor as the beings who bestowed his individual I upon him. It was in this way that Nordic humanity experienced them at a time when the peoples in other regions of Europe had already been given other tasks in preparing for the reception of the I. Every people had its appointed task. Chief among them was a homogeneous group of peoples, that widely distributed folk community whom we call the Celts. As we know from earlier lectures, it was the responsibility of the folk spirit of the Celts, who was subsequently given quite other tasks, to educate the still youthful eye of the peoples of Europe. To this end, it was necessary that the Celts themselves should receive an education and instruction that was mediated directly from the higher worlds. Hence, it was appropriate for the Celts to be given, through their initiates, the Druid priests, certain instructions that they could not have acquired by their own strength alone, instructions that they then passed on to the other peoples. The whole of European culture is a gift from the European mysteries. The progressive folk souls are always the leaders of the collective culture of humanity as it unfolds. But when the time came for those European folk spirits to guide human beings to act more out of their own initiative, it was necessary for the mysteries gradually to withdraw. Therefore, as the Celtic element withdrew, there followed a gradual withdrawal of the mysteries into far more secret places. At the time of the ancient Celts, there was a much more direct relationship between the spiritual beings and the people because the eye was still attached to the life of the group soul. And yet the Celtic element was destined to bring the gift of the eye to the other parts of the population as well. Thus, in the period preceding the evolution proper of the Germanic Nordic peoples, the mystery teachings could be given to European civilization only by the ancient Celtic mysteries. These mystery teachings allowed only so much to be revealed as was necessary in order to establish a basis for the whole culture of Europe. Thereupon, by mingling with the widely diverse racial fragments, parts of peoples and racial communities, the most diverse folk souls and folk spirits were able to draw nourishment from the old culture, 
bringing the eye into continually new situations for its education. That eye which was struggling to extricate itself from the foundations of what lies beneath the human eye. After the old Greek culture had to some degree reached its high point in the fulfillment of its special mission, we see a totally different aspect of that same mission in the spirit of ancient Rome and its various stages of culture. We have already mentioned that the several post-Atlantean cultures followed upon one another in strict sequence. In order to gain an overall picture of the successive stages of those cultures, we may summarize them as follows. The ancient Indian culture worked upon the human etheric body. Hence the remarkable wisdom and clairvoyant insight of that old Indian culture, because after the development of special human capacities, it was a culture reflected in the human etheric body, so that we may envisage that old Indian culture in the following way. See the schematic diagram below. From the Atlantean time, well into the subsequent post-Atlantean time, the Indian folk spirit was developing the inner soul forces to the fullest extent without awakening to consciousness of the I. It then returned to its activity in the human etheric body. The essential element in the ancient Indian culture is that the ancient Indian was able to return again to the etheric body in which it then developed those wonderfully refined forces which later came to be reflected in the Vedas and even more subtly in the Vedanta philosophy. This was only possible because the Indian folk soul had achieved a high degree of development before the eye could be perceived, at a time when the human being was able to see by means of the forces of the etheric body itself. The Persian folk soul had not developed as far. It could perceive only in the sentient or astral body. The Babylonian, Chaldean, Egyptian culture was different again, there it was the sentient soul that was able to perceive. Thus the Egyptian Chaldean culture was one that worked in the sentient soul. The Greco-Roman folk spirit went as far as the intellectual or mind soul where he was able to work. But he could only work at this intellectual or mind soul because in its turn it had a kind of imprint of its being in the etheric body. But the picture of the world that emerged in the Greek culture was less real, less clear-cut. It lacked the stamp of reality. Whereas in the ancient Indian culture there had been direct work in the etheric body, now the image of reality was blurred, shadowy, dimmer, in the way I described it when I said it was like a memory of what those people had once experienced, like a memory reflecting back to the etheric body. In the other peoples who followed on from the Greeks, we are chiefly concerned with the use of the physical body for the progressive development of the consciousness soul. Hence the Greek culture was a culture that we can only understand if we grasp it from within, if we realize that in that culture what was important in external experience was that which emerged from the inner life of the Greeks. By contrast, the peoples living more toward the west and north 
had, under the guidance of their folk souls, to turn increasingly toward the external world and see what needed to be developed there that would play a role on the physical plane. The Germanic Nordic peoples still had the special task that only they could fulfill because they still enjoyed the supremely important gift of the old clairvoyance which enabled them to see into the spiritual world, namely to incorporate the primeval spiritual experiences that were still vital in their souls into that which was to be established on the physical plane. There was one people who, in the latter part of its development, no longer possessed this gift, a people who had not undergone the preliminary development, but had been suddenly presented on the physical plane with the birth of the human eye, and was thus able to take care of all that this eye needed for its development on the physical plane only under the guidance of its folk soul, its archangel. This was the Roman people. Everything that the Roman people had to accomplish under the guidance of its folk spirit for the collective mission of Europe was aimed at asserting the human eye as such. Hence the Roman people was able to develop the way in which one eye had to relate to another eye. This people founded civil law and jurisprudence built purely on the eye. How one human eye should relate to another human eye. This was the great question in the mission of the Roman people. The other peoples who developed out of the culture of the Roman people already possessed more of what comes from the sentient soul, the intellectual or mind soul, and the consciousness soul, and fructifies the eye in some way, projecting it into the world. For this all the mingling of races that external history records and that is found in the Italian and Iberian peninsulas in France and in Great Britain today was necessary in order to develop the eye on the physical plane in accordance with the different nuances of the sentient soul, the intellectual soul and the consciousness soul. Such was the great mission of those peoples that gradually developed in the most diverse ways in Western Europe. Much can be discovered by studying the individual shades of culture and missions of the peoples in Western Europe. If you study the light and dark sides of the characteristics manifest in the peoples of the Italian and Iberian peninsulas, you will find there a mingling of the eye with the sentient soul in a special way. The special characteristics of the peoples who lived on French soil right up to modern times will become comprehensible when you consider how in them the intellectual or mind-soul mingles with the eye. The great achievements in world history, represented by the peoples of Great Britain, on the other hand, can be attributed to the way in which the impulse of the consciousness soul has penetrated the human eye. The world historic mission that emanated from British lands is also associated with parliamentary forms of government and the founding of constitutional rights. The union of the consciousness soul with the I had not yet come about inwardly. Nevertheless, if you recognize how this union between the consciousness soul and the outward striving I came about, 
you will find that the great historical conquests by the inhabitants of those islands originated in that impulse. You will also find that the establishment of parliamentary forms of government at once becomes comprehensible when you know that the purpose was to place an impulse of the consciousness soul onto the stage of world history. Many cultural nuances were necessary, for the individual peoples had to be guided through many stages of eye development. If we had sufficient time to enlarge on these things, we could find many examples from history that show the ramifications of those basic forces and how they manifest in the most diverse ways. This is how the soul constitution worked in the Western peoples who no longer possessed any direct original memory of the former clairvoyant insight into the spiritual world. Later in the Germanic Nordic regions, there had to be a wholly different development of what had proceeded directly from a gradual, continuous evolution of the original clairvoyance with which the sentient soul had already been imbued. This accounts for that characteristic trait of inwardness, which is simply the after-effect of a clairvoyant insight experienced in a former age. The task of the southern Germanic peoples initially lay in the domain of the consciousness soul. The Greco-Roman age had to develop the intellectual or mind-soul, but not only this. It also had to include a wonderful development still working in from prehistoric times and imbued with clairvoyant insight. All this poured into the consciousness soul of the Central European and Nordic Germanic peoples, and its after-effects lived on as an inner disposition of soul. Then it was the task of the southern Germanic peoples to develop, first of all, what was necessary for the inner preparation of the consciousness soul, imbuing it with the spiritual substance of the old clairvoyance, transposed now onto the physical plane. The philosophies of Central Europe represented by Fichte, Schelling and Hegel, even as late as the 19th century, appear far removed from the sphere of mythology, yet they are quite simply the product of the highest sublimation of the old clairvoyant insight, of the collaboration with the divine spiritual powers in the human inner being. Otherwise it would not have been possible for someone like Hegel to look upon his ideas as realities. It would have been impossible for him to make the strange remark so characteristic of the man when in answer to the question, what is the abstract, he replied, the abstract is, for example, an individual human being who carries out his daily duties, a carpenter, let us say. What is concrete to the purely abstract theorist was therefore something abstract for Hegel. What to a purely abstract theorist are mere thoughts were to him great mighty architects of the world. Hegel's philosophy is the ultimate, the most highly sublimated expression of the consciousness soul and embodies in the form of pure concepts what Nordic humanity had still seen as sensible, supersensible, divine spiritual powers associated with the I. And in Fichte's case, the I in his philosophy was simply the precipitation of what the god Thor had given to the human soul but viewed from the standpoint of the consciousness soul and clothed seemingly in the barest of thoughts.
the thought I am, which is the starting point of Fichte's philosophy. From the gift of the eye by the god Thor, or Donar, out of the spiritual world to the ancient Nordic peoples, a direct line of evolution leads straight to this philosophy. Thor had to prepare this development for the consciousness soul in order that it might have the content appropriate for its task, which is to turn toward the external world and work within it. But this philosophy is aware not only of the external world of crude, empirical experience, but finds in the external world the content of the consciousness soul itself and regards nature simply as the idea in its other aspect. The mission of the Germanic Nordic peoples in Central Europe is to ensure that this impulse lives on. Since all evolution is a continuous process, we must now ask ourselves how it will continue. Looking back into ancient times, we observe a remarkable phenomenon. We have already mentioned that in ancient India the first culture of the etheric body took place after the spiritual forces had been adequately developed. But there are also other cultures that have preserved the old Atlantean culture and carried it over into the human being of post-Atlantean times. The Indians, on the one hand, approached their etheric body and, using its forces, created out of it their lofty cultural life. On the other hand, we find a culture that was also rooted in Atlantis and continued to work on in the post-Atlantean epoch, namely Chinese culture, which came about through work on the other aspect of etheric body consciousness. If you bear this connection in mind, and remember that the Atlantean culture was directly related to what in our earlier lectures we called the Great Spirit, you will understand the peculiarities of Chinese culture. That culture was directly connected with the highest stages of world evolution, yet it also still works into human bodies today and from an entirely different angle. It is therefore understandable that these two cultures, the two great polarities of the post-Atlantean epoch, will clash at some future time. The Indian, which to a limited extent is still capable of developing further, and the Chinese, which isolates itself and remains static, repeating what existed in the ancient Atlantean epoch. One gains a spiritual, scientific, and poetic impression when one observes the evolution of the Chinese empire. Think of the Great Wall that sought to put a boundary on all sides around everything that stemmed from primeval ages and had developed in post-Atlantean times. A poetic feeling of esoteric wonder steals over us when we compare the Great Wall of China with what had once existed in primeval ages. Here I can only give the barest hints, but if you compare them with the findings of science that already exist today, you will see how extraordinarily illuminating they are. Let us look clairvoyantly at the old continent of Atlantis, which we should look for where the Atlantic Ocean now lies, between Africa and Europe on one side and America on the other. That continent was encircled by a kind of warm current, which, strange as it may seem, was seen clairvoyantly to flow up from the south through Baffin Bay and on toward northern Greenland, which it circled entirely. Then, turning eastward, it gradually cooled down. 
Long before Russia and Siberia had been lifted to the earth's surface, it flowed down along where the Ural Mountains would be, skirted the eastern Carpathians, and debauched into the region now occupied by the Sahara, before finally reaching the Atlantic Ocean in the neighborhood of the Bay of Biscay. It was an entirely self-contained current, of which now only the last remaining traces still exist. It is now the Gulf Stream, which once encircled the Atlantean continent. Parenthesis, you will recall that in their soul life, the Greeks experienced a memory of the spiritual worlds. It was a memory of that Atlantean epoch which arose in them as the picture of Oceanus, a true picture that was drawn from old Atlantean times. Close parenthesis. It was this encircling current which flowed down from Spitzbergen as a warm stream and then gradually cooled and so on that the Chinese recreated in their great wall, which encircled the culture from Atlantean times that they had saved and brought across to their new region. The Atlantean culture had as yet no history, hence the Chinese civilization too has retained an unhistorical aspect. It preserves something of the pre-Indian culture, something surviving from old Atlantis. We will now turn to the further progress of the Germanic Nordic folk spirit and what followed from it. What consequences ensue when a folk spirit so directs his people that the spirit self, in particular, can develop? Let us remind ourselves that the etheric body was developed in the ancient Indian culture, the sentient body in the Persian, the sentient soul in the Egypto-Chaldean, the intellectual or mind-soul in the Greco-Roman, and the consciousness soul in our present age, which has not yet reached its conclusion. In the next development, the consciousness soul will take hold of the spirit self in such a way that the spirit self illumines the consciousness soul. This is the task of the sixth post-Atlantean culture, for which preparation must gradually be made. This culture, which must be preeminently a receptive one, for it must devotedly await the inflowing of the spirit self into the consciousness soul, is being prepared by the peoples of Western Asia and their outposts in the Slav peoples of Eastern Europe. The latter, together with their folk souls, are the outposts for the very good reason that future developments must, to some extent, be prepared beforehand, must already be anticipated in order to prepare the ground for what is to come later. It is extremely interesting to study these outposts of a folk soul who is preparing himself for future ages. This accounts for the particular character of the Slav peoples who are our immediate eastern neighbors. To a Western European, their whole culture gives the impression of being at a preparatory stage, and in a curious way, through the mediums of their outposts, they present something that in spirit is entirely different from any other mythology. We would give a false impression of these eastern outposts as a future civilization if we were to compare them with the culture of the western European peoples who enjoy a continuous unbroken impulse that is still rooted in and has its source in the old clairvoyance. The peculiarity connected with the souls of these Eastern European peoples is reflected in their whole relationship with the higher worlds. 
In comparison with our mythologies in Western Europe, with their individual deities, the Slav people's relationship with the spiritual world is entirely different. What the Slav mythology presents to us as the direct outpouring of the inner being of the people is something we may compare with the anthroposophical conception of successive planes or worlds through which we prepare ourselves to understand a spiritual, a higher culture. The West, and then there's East question mark in brackets, has received successive worlds lying side by side. We may have the following conception in connection with the East. Whereas the West has been molded by the influence of successive and related cultures, we find in the East a distinct consciousness of a world of the Cosmic Father. Everything that is creatively active in air and fire, and all the elements in and above the earth, is embodied in the concept of the Heavenly Father, in one seemingly great all-embracing idea, which is at the same time an all-embracing feeling. We think of the world of Devakan impregnating our earth. In the same way, we are met in the East by the world of the Heavenly Father who impregnates the spirit of the earth, which is experienced as the mother. We have no other expression and can think of no other way of describing the whole spirit of the earth except by using the picture of the maternal earth being becoming impregnated. It is an image not of individual deities, but of two worlds confronting one another. And as a third world, with which these two come face to face, we have what we must feel to be the blessed child of those two. This is neither an individual being, nor a feeling in the soul, but something created by the Heavenly Father and the Earth Mother. The relation of Devakan to the earth is perceived thus from the point of view of the spiritual world. That which appears as blessing, as the coming of springtime, as sprouting and growing in the material body, is felt as something entirely spiritual. And that which grows and sprouts in the soul is perceived as the world that at the same time is felt to be the blessed child of the Heavenly Father and the Earth Mother universal as these conceptions are, we find them among the outposts of the Slav peoples who have gone westward as outposts. In no Western European mythology is this conception so universal. In the West we find clearly defined deities, but they are not the same as what we depict as the planes of the spiritual world, which are more nearly represented by the Heavenly Father, the Earth Mother, and the Blessed Child, as depicted in the East. In the Blessed Child, we find a further world that again permeates another. This is a world that is envisaged as a separate world because it is associated with the physical sun and its light. The Slav element also recognizes this being, though different, of course, in conception and feeling, which we have so often met with in Persian mythology. The Slav element recognizes the sun being who sheds his blessings upon the other three worlds so that the destiny of humanity is woven into creation, into the earth, through the impregnation of the earth mother by the heavenly father and through what the sun spirit weaves into both these worlds. There is a fifth world that embraces everything spiritual. In all the forces of nature and its creatures, the Eastern European element feels the spiritual world that underlies everything. 
We must think of this as a wholly different response of feeling, associated more, perhaps, with the beings of nature, the phenomena of nature, and the creations of nature. We have to think of the Eastern soul as being able to see beings in natural processes. It sees not only physical sensory aspects, but also astral spiritual aspects. From this came the inner pictures of huge numbers of beings in that strange spiritual world, which we can best compare with the world of the light elves. The spiritual world that in spiritual science is looked upon as the fifth world is approximately the world that is dawning in the hearts and minds of the peoples of Eastern Europe. The name we attach to it is of no importance. What is important is that the feelings are subtle and various, and that the inner pictures by means of which this fifth plane or this fifth spiritual world has been described are to be found in the world of Eastern Europe. With this frame of mind, that world of the East was working toward the spirit that is to pour the spirit self into the human being, in anticipation of the time when the consciousness soul will step up to become the spirit self during the sixth post-Atlantean age, following our own fifth age. Not only does this show itself to us in a highly unique manner in the creations of the folk souls who are as I have described them, we are also wonderfully prepared for it in diverse other expressions of Eastern Europe and its culture. It is very remarkable and most interesting to observe how the Eastern European expresses his natural receptivity for pure spirit by having assimilated Western European culture with great devotion, thus looking forward prophetically to the time when he will be able to unite something even greater with his being. Hence also his limited interest in the details of this Western European culture. He absorbs what is offered more in broad outlines, ignoring the details, because he is preparing to assimilate what is to enter into humanity as the spirit self. It is particularly interesting to see how under this influence it has been possible for Eastern Europe to develop a much more advanced conception of the Christ than has come about in Western Europe with the exception of the revelations made here by spiritual science. Among all non-theosophists, the Russian philosopher Soloviev has the most advanced conception of the Christ. His conception of Christ is such that it can only be understood by students of spiritual science. He lifts it to ever higher planes and reveals its infinite potentialities, showing that our understanding of Christ today is only a beginning because the Christ impulse has only been able to reveal to humanity a fraction of what it holds in store. If we look at the conception of Christ as presented by Hegel, for example, we find that Hegel understood him as only the most refined, the most sublimated consciousness soul could understand him. Soloviev's conception of Christ, however, is very different. He fully recognizes the dual nature of this conception, rejecting the endless theological polemics that in reality rest upon deep misunderstandings because ordinary conceptions are inadequate for an understanding of the dual nature of Christ and because they fail to develop in us any realization that the two aspects, the human and the divine, must be clearly distinguished. The conception of Christ rests upon a clear realization 
of what took place when the Christ Spirit entered into the man Jesus of Nazareth, who had already developed all the necessary attributes. We must first of all understand the two natures of Christ, even though they unite again at a higher level. As long as we have not grasped this duality, we have not understood the Christ in all his fullness. The only philosophical understanding that can achieve this is one which foresees that the human being himself will participate in a culture in which his consciousness soul will be able to receive the spirit self, so that in the sixth cultural age he will feel himself to be a duality in whom the higher nature will curb the lower. Soloviev includes this duality in his conception of Christ and emphasizes that this conception has meaning only if one accepts the existence of a divine and a human nature that truly cooperate, that form not an abstract but an organic unity. Already today Soloviev is aware of the fact that we must picture the Christ being as having two centers of will. If you accept the theosophical teachings about the true significance of the Christ being and how it came into existence through the presence not simply of a thought-out, but of a spiritually real Indian influence, then you will think of the formation within Christ of the aspect of feeling, the aspect of thinking, and the aspect of will in the three bodies. This is a human feeling, thinking, and willing, into which the divine feeling, thinking, and willing descends. European humanity will only assimilate this fully, when it has advanced to the sixth stage of culture. It is expressed prophetically in a wonderful way in Soloviev's conception of Christ, which announces the dawn of a future culture. This philosophy of Eastern Europe overtakes that of Hegel and Kant in giant strides, and in its presence one suddenly senses the first stirrings of a development still to come. It is so far in advance because we feel how this conception of Christ shines prophetically far into the future as the dawn of the sixth post-Atlantean culture. Consequently, the whole Christ being and the whole significance of Christ comes to occupy the central place in philosophy, and this becomes totally different from the Western European conceptions of it. The conception of Christ insofar as it has been developed outside spiritual science and is conceived as a living substance, as a living spiritual personality that will permeate all social life and social institutions, that is felt as a personality in whose service the human being finds himself as, quote, one endowed with the spirit self, close quote. This Christ personality is portrayed in a wonderfully concrete way in Soloviev's various expositions about the Gospel of John and its opening words. Once again, it is only if we stand on the ground of spiritual science that we can understand Soloviev's profound interpretation of the sentence, in the beginning was the word or the logos, and how differently the Gospel of John is understood by a philosophy which in a remarkable way anticipates the future. If on the one hand Hegel's philosophy marks a high point, something that is born out of the consciousness soul as the highest philosophical achievement, then, on the other hand, this philosophy of Soloviev provides the seed 
in the consciousness soul for the philosophy of the spirit self, which will be incorporated during the sixth cultural age. There is perhaps no greater contrast than that eminently Christian conception of the state that hovers as a great ideal before Soloviev like a dream of the future, that conception of a Christian state and people that gathers everything implicit within that conception and presents it as an offering to the in-streaming spirit self in order to hold it up as an ideal to be infused with Christianity by the powers of the future. There can be no greater contrast than that between Soloviev's idea of a Christian community in which the conception of Christ lies wholly in the future and Augustine's City of God, which, although it accepts the concept of Christ, nonetheless constructs a state in the image of the Roman state, with Christ incorporated into the Roman idea of the state. What provides the knowledge of the emergent Christianity of the future is the decisive question. In Soloviev's state, Christ is the blood that circulates and the body social. And the essential point is that the state is envisaged as a concrete personality so that it will act as a living spiritual entity but at the same time will fulfill its mission with all the idiosyncrasies of a personality. No other philosophy is so deeply permeated by that conception of Christ, which is anticipated in spiritual science at a higher level, and yet at the same time has remained so long in the germinal stage. Everything that we find in the East, from the makeup of the people to its philosophy, appears to us as something that contains only the germinal beginning of a future evolution, which therefore had also to submit to the special education of the time-spirit we also know as the time-spirit of ancient Greece, the guiding spirit of Christianity, who was entrusted with the mission of becoming later on the time-spirit of Europe. The people whose task it will be to develop the seed of the sixth cultural age had from the very beginning to be not only educated but nursed and nurtured by that time spirit. And so we can accurately say, and here the father concept and the mother concept lose their dual aspect, that what makes up the heart of the Russian people and will gradually evolve into the folk soul was not only educated but was nursed and suckled by that which, as we have seen, had been developed out of the old Greek time spirit and had then assumed another rank with an outwardly oriented task. Thus the various missions are distributed between Western, Central and Northern Europe and Eastern Europe. I have tried to give you an inkling of these things. On the basis of these indications, I propose to add further observations and show what the Europe of the future will be like, which will justify our efforts to form our ideals on the basis of such knowledge. I propose to show how through this influence the Germanic Nordic folk spirit will gradually be transformed into a time spirit. The end of lecture 10